Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. To all who shall see these presents, greetings. On behalf of Marine Corps University, Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Kulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the world to the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Nate Janikin, Operations Officer here at the Kulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. The conflict in Gaza began two weeks ago on October 7th. Uh, however, for this episode, we decided to look back in time and provide some context as to why Gaza is where it is, why it is uh, what it is. And I think it's also important to note that the day we're recording this, not on the published day, but uh, the day we're recording, is the 40th anniversary of the bombing of the barracks in Beirut, uh, where we lost uh, 220 Marines, 18 sailors, three soldiers, uh, and a few minutes after that bombing, there were also 58 uh, French paratroopers uh, that were killed as well. Uh, so that was 40, uh, 40 years ago uh, today. Uh, so back with us is uh, Dr. Amin Tarzi, the Director of Middle East Studies here at Marine Corps University. And Dr. Tarzi, if you Thank want to go you. ahead. Uh, again, uh, greetings to all who see or hear this. Uh, again, I hope I, we didn't have to do the, any of this. Uh, but is our job in the professional military education field to make sure that we uh, learn, educate our students, military and civilian who are here. And I do that work to, to give them more education. So whatever happens, this war, the war between Israel and Hamas is going to continue. It's not, not be a short one. And, and this is why, as you su suggested today, uh, we need to get a little deeper uh, into uh, where it is geopolitically what happened and then move on and again you mentioned again about the 40th anniversary of the beirut bombing uh this is why i'm wearing this pen i joined the marine corps because of that i'm not going to go to details on that there's actually a podcast at the national museum of the marine corps on that uh when we lost more marines on that one single day than any time since the second world war specifically into the landings of Jima, and thankfully since that time uh the reason Beirut is important, and, and we're not going to belabor that in this episode, uh, is because there is a connectivity to what happened in Beirut and what is happening today. Beirut was a very successful, and I say that for their side, for that was the first time Iran with its proxies at the time Hezbollah was a proxy, now it's more of its own force with Iranian support, managed to uh, get the American forces, which were there in peace. Uh, they were not part of a war zone, a warring faction. They were there as part of a multinational force to safeguard the exit of Palestinians, uh, which were there, and Israel had already uh, went into Lebanon, uh, and they were there for almost 18 years. All of this, in a way, as Yogi Berani, both of you know, the baseball, the Yankee baseball player said, it's deja vu all over again. I hope not. But... We have to stop and pause as we talk about the war in, in, in between Israel and Gaza. This is a war which is uh, not, you can't even war game it. This is not about high tech. We have mentioned that. This is when, it, when and if the land component of this war starts, it's going to be protracted. It will be very ugly. And winning also would be very, very murky. And it could be long term. Before that, and we can cover those uh, as we go through this, uh, is to know why we have this, this issue. Uh, uh, map one, please. In this map, you see three uh, different maps of Israel. Uh, and first one is actually the partition map to the left of your screen. Uh, that map you see that actually is the United Nations map. That came out from United Nations resolution uh, uh, 181, which is the partition of what was called then the Mandate of Palestine. I'm not going to go into the Mandate period. Uh, the Mandate period is when the British took over the area from the collapsing Ottoman Empire, but that's too historical. But we go to this. So the map you see is the map that United Nations uh, decided how to divide the Mandate of Palestine between 
a Jewish state, which is what you see in the blue kind of bluish color, and an Arab state, which is what you see in the orange color. And if you look at the middle, right in the middle of it, there's a little white dot, and that is the city of Jerusalem. Even then in 1948, even conceptually, as they divided this piece of land between Jews and Arabs, uh, there was Jerusalem was not decided because it was so contentious. After this, you have the map in the middle is once that declaration happened, Israel or the, the, they declared their independence in 1948 and they accepted that partition. The Arab side did not. And there was an invasion of this newly formed state of Israel uh, by five Arab armies, Egypt, Transjordan, which is now called the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and what is called the multinational force mainly made out of Iraqis. Uh, they came in to literally, as the time was said, to drive the Jews back out of the land of what they called Palestine. Uh, there's always competitive narratives in Israel, always since the creation. And this war is known mostly in, in the academia. We refer to it as the 1948 war. In Israel, it's called the War of Independence. In the Palestinian side, it's called a Nakba, which means in Arabic, the catastrophe. So that's where the competing narratives comes in. One side's War of Independence is the other one's Nakba or catastrophe. And after that, you get Israel from 1948 until 1967, the map which is on the right of your screen, which is purplish. And then if you look at that map, there is a little strip on your left side of that map, right on the Mediterranean, that is the Gaza Strip. At the time, in 1948, Gaza Strip becomes sovereign territory of the Arab Republic of Egypt. Again, I repeat, in 1948, after Israel wins the war between attacking, you know, the attacking armies, they gain control of everything except Gaza, which goes to Egypt, and the West Bank. Again, West Bank, some people call it Palestine, the Israelis call it Judea and Samaria. We'll stick with, with West Bank. The West Bank goes to Jordan, under direct sovereignty of Jordan, with East Jerusalem. The holy places actually fall under Jordan. So Gaza becomes part of Egypt until 1967. Uh, Before we go on, yes, looking at the far left map with the partition, right? why... Does it have that large, because it looks like there's a small tip that touches between what's now Gaza into the West Bank, and then it splits, it looks like it splits the two, you know, there's a small portion of a Jewish state above the, yes. Israel, and then a very large portion to the south. Why did they partition it? Good, good question. The partitions were done mainly on where the concentration of populations were. This map, as you see, is, is very, very, uh, I mean, the, the state of, of the Arab portion is in three separate places. Of course, from if you look at it from the Arab perspective, they say also that they wanted a non-contiguous state. So you have three different places to make it weak. That was done within the United Nations, whether that is there or not, as I said, you can hear both sides, the narrative says the one reason it is like that, and there's no connectivity. And this has been an issue even now, because with the two-state solution, as we hear it, was always there. There was a disconnect between Gaza and the West Bank, although there was some ideas we'll talk later on that uh, to connect them through land swaps and so on and so forth. But yes, the reason was, the reason stated reason by UN was that that is where the populations were. And this is why the, Jerusalem was never really finalized because Jerusalem, everybody was Christians, Muslims, and Jews all looked at Jerusalem as a holy site. So that was left. But this is the main issue. So if you look at the north, you have Haifa in that area, which is mostly Jewish population. You have Gaza. But if you look at Gaza, it actually goes further north on the, on the, all the way to Ashkelon uh, and on the side. On the, on the bottom, when you look at the Egyptian uh, Sinai, there wasn't many people there either. There were some Bedouins, very few settlements. But if they saw settlements, they just basically went around it. And they wanted an equilibrium. If you look at the land masses of them, it's almost equal. So, but they couldn't put it together. Perhaps they gave the so so. That's that's the reason. 
Yeah, I'm also thinking about the terrain and that bottom. Like I've driven on that road from Eilat up to the Dead Sea and uh, to Jerusalem, and that's almost all desert, rocks, mountains. There's yes. like nothing in between Eilat and the Dead Sea, almost. Right. Well, there are actually some interesting uh, geological features there. Sodom's uh, daughters, right? Yeah, There's they, wife and a daughter. Yeah, they also have the the, the inverted volcanoes. Oh, you're right. Which is very interesting, but yes. Uh, so that was that was it. The key here is again is that one side accepted, one did not, and then there was an ensuing war. But thank you for that. Uh, if we go to uh, the second map, please, and then I will we will get to the discussion. I just want to put this. So in 1967, there was another war, uh, not initiated by Israel, uh, but it is the most decisive victory Israel has ever had. Uh, it's called the Six-Day War because it basically took six days. And in six days, Israel took the entire Sinai Peninsula, including Gaza, which was then part of Egypt, as I stated, from Egypt all the way to the, to the uh, banks of the Suez Canal. It took the entire West Bank, including, of course, the city of Jerusalem from Jordan, and it took the Golan Heights all the way to the north, if you see, from Syria. And the Golan Heights, of course, all of these have major strategic ramifications, also made Israel almost triple its size, if not more. And this is the reality from 67 until the peace treaties between Israel and, and, and Egypt, and then later on with Jordan. So we have to, again, keep on keeping about putting this into perspective. The Palestinian story the nationalism of Palestinian issue. While in 48, it comes in and it almost parallels the Israeli uh, story, copying parts of it, is really comes into four after 67. Because what happens in 67 is Israel now is governing as an occupying force, the vast majority of Palestinians who are there. Many left for Jordan and other Arab countries or elsewhere in the world. But you have now occupation of Palestinian towns in the West Bank and in Gaza directly under Israeli occupation. And this is the key to, to understand the ongoing process. And we're not going to go again belabor this point. There's a lot of books and publications from both sides, and we can, we can uh, certainly put some of those there. But right now, uh, they are available on the internet if somebody wants to look at them, giving different sides. During this whole time, the only major battle that happens that people have talked about, uh, which was exactly 50 years plus one day from the uh, attacks of Hamas against Israel on 7 October this year, uh, was the 1973 war. That is the map to your right, where Egypt breached if you look at the map closely uh, on to the to the right bank of the the canal, very briefly held some territory, which is darker uh, maroon, but then Israelis not only took that, but actually went into Egyptian territory proper. Uh, that is kind of the more brownish color. They held it. That there was a ceasefire brokered by the United States and the Soviets actually worked on that. And that war changed. Uh, and what it did was it, it, it started the process of Egypt understanding that they cannot win their land, Sinai specifically by force. And the late president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, changed sides from the Soviets. I'm being very brief on a very complicated issue to the United States, maybe one of the biggest uh, major event in the Cold War where Egypt switched sides from, from the Soviet camp to the American camp. And then, of course, he goes in to Jerusalem in 1978, gives a speech in the Knesset, and the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel is signed, which we call called that the Camp David Accord. And according to the Camp David Accord, there's a gradual uh, handover by Israel peacefully of the entire Sinai back to Egypt. As this is happening, Egypt relinquishes sovereignty over Gaza, back to Gaza. So this is where Gaza becomes a part of this 
eventual Palestinian authority. At the same time, uh, there's a peace negotiations going on, initially secret, but later on open between the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan and Israel. And part of that is that Jordan relinquishes sovereignty over the West Bank. So now we have post-67, during the Camp David Accords, we have a Palestinian authority, which is at the time PLO, or Fatah is the biggest organization within it, Palestinian Liberation Organization, becomes the, as you would, the Palestinian government, controlling or being in the West Bank and Gaza under Israeli occupation. So that's fast forward to where we, 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 we are right now. Uh, I'll do one more map and then we can talk a little bit. And if you look at the map to the left, this is very complicated because it's very detailed, but, but I don't know how, how well you can see it. But here you see post-67 West Bank or Palestine, as it said, and you see how many uh, Jewish settlements or Israeli settlements are there and how much incursions have happened on the map of 67. When you hear pre-67, they're talking about the line that was in 67. Now, the borders have actually moved much more into the West Bank. Uh, and, and also, there are settlements all over the place. When you see the dark green, that's, those are Palestinian uh, towns. Uh, that was the situation in, uh, in the West Bank. In Gaza, because of upheavals and, and uprisings in, in, uh, among the Palestinians called the Intifada, uh, in 2005, 2005, the Israeli Prime Minister then Ariel Sharon unilaterally withdraws Israeli forces from Gaza, dismantles all the settlements that are there and withdraws from Gaza totally. And this is when the story that we have today, in a sense, Hamas does. Hamas is an organization, a terrorist organization working uh, sometimes along, sometimes against PLO or Fatah or Palestinian Authority. And as the peace process starts, the Oslo Agreement starts, Hamas never accepts it. Never, Hamas actually regards the peacemakers, Mr. Arafat and his groups, as traitors to the Palestinian cause. And Hamas's constitution, if you would, or their stated goal is the destruction of all of Israel. You hear it sometimes on the streets in the protests right now from river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What they're meaning is river is Jordan, sea is the Mediterranean. So that means there will be no Israel. So Hamas believes in the total destruction of the state of Israel. Or sometimes if you talk to them in a, in a more uh, academic way, they say, no, to be one state, Palestine and Israelis will have rights within it. Jews will have rights. I don't think anybody, this is a, I'm just editorializing myself after what we saw on uh, 7th of October, that, that right now is, 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 is not possible. So anyway, so that is where Hamas is, is going against the Palestinian Authority and they are very popular. And in 2007, partially through election and partially through violence, terror, and I say terror because they literally threw, and there are pictures of it, threw the candidates of the Palestinian Authority or PA from roofs. Uh, and, and they basically won the election, if you would. Uh, they might have won it too. I'm not saying they were not popular in 2007. Since 2007, Gaza has been ruled directly and fully by Hamas. So I hope this allow, at least puts us into a perspective. Again, we skipped over much, and some people may think that we are skipping because we don't want to talk about it. It's just that we can give the history talk. It is there, but I just want to contextualize where we are, how this happened. And if you look at the map to your right on the screen, uh, it gives you a good perspective of, of the, the size of the state of Israel. Uh, for American audiences, it's, it's about the size of the state of New Jersey. So it's a very small territory, and it tells you the size of Gaza, 
which is there. So you have the West Bank and a lighter color of Israel because for most countries in the world, including the United States, that is part of what would be a future Palestinian state with some uh, perhaps modifications and Gaza included. Uh, and then you see the rest of the Israel and in, in, in dimensions there. I'm not going to go over the dimensions. Uh, just the next map, and this is just a comparison. Again, this is more for American audience, and that's a size comparison when you see if you, if you place Israel in the middle of the United States, that's how big it is uh, or how small it is. Uh, which, 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 why is it important? Because when we're talking about a urban warfare and a minuscule part of that, we are talking about a, a uh, prospects of a very, very bloody and very, very uh, prolonged and most likely uh, the victory, stated victory for which would be very elusive. Uh, that's where we are standing on, on, on this issue. And then the last one, we can just keep it there, please. So we can talk with that whenever we talk. This is the situation today. Uh, so in Gaza, there are three major areas of population. It is as one of the most populated places anywhere in the world. Uh, you have basically 2.2 or plus million people in, in a very small piece of territory. Uh, the majority, the largest concentration is Gaza City, which is the northern portion. And then you have Khan Yunus in the middle, and then Rafah, which is on the Egyptian border. But there's people all over it. Those are the more darker uh, uh, colors in there. What Israel is asking right now is the evacuation of civilians in that area that is colored orange uh, to what is called the Gaza River. There's a river there south of that. That is where we are we are standing right now. And when you hear about Rafah crossing, Rafah crossing, which is in Egypt, that's in the south southern part on the Egyptian border. That's where right now the eight convoys that you see are coming in are coming from there. The Egyptian, the Israeli uh, crossing, uh, which is the RS crossing, is closed right now. So I hope that, that the, the geo part of the politics is, is set. And then we can talk more about what is happening right now and kind of foresee right now. I think one of my questions when we were looking at the map with uh, West Bank and Gaza, we were talking about Hamas taking control of, of Gaza. Do they have any say or sway over the Palestinians that are on the West Bank? Very, very good question, honestly. I know. Yes. Uh, it is very sad that the Palestinian Authority, which is a recognized body by the United States and every other UN as well, uh, has been weakened by many reasons. Number one, first is leadership. Uh, you have a leadership that has uh, been there. It is very uh, stuck into a past. The individual on top, uh, Abu Mazen or Mahmoud Abbas is uh, very frail and unfortunately there's a lot of charges at least in the open media of corruption and incompetence so uh waste of money there's quite a bit of money comes in from very different uh organizations uh and it's not distributed or used the way it ought to be and all of that has led to vacuums of power and vacuums of of even a response to the demands of the Palestinians for a better life, for a better future, for a brighter future, for a more dignified living. And unfortunately, the Palestinian Authority has not been able to do that. Partially it's their fault. I have to say partially that is the fault of the politics that has been going on in Israel. There has been a notion that there is no, nobody to speak with. Of course, Israel cannot speak to Hamas because Hamas is a terrorist organization calling for the destruction of Israel and the Palestinian Authority which has a relationship with Israel is deemed very weak but it is weakened more by the expansions of settlements or by the fact that they are they are pushed in a way that you know it's, it's a catch-22 they are corrupt yes they are incapable but they are not given chances to show or 
that they can do something. Both of these things, to answer your question, and this is a dangerous part of it, has opened political space, has opened the, the cyberspace, has opened the minds of the angry Palestinians to an alternative, and guess what that alternative is? That's Hamas. So yes, Hamas is very, we don't know what, how much, what is their popularity? No election has been held an open election and, and the West Bank, uh, some people say maybe it's not a good idea to do that, uh, but Hamas does this, Hamas attacks Israel, not just now, it has been a lot of attacks, smaller scale, much, much, much smaller scale, but they show that they're active. Those in Israel, those, those among Palestinians who are looking and suing for peace, uh, dividends have not come in. A few have gotten very rich. I have actually been to the West Bank, traveled. Uh, you see a very disproportionate distribution of wealth. And it is very eye-catching in a small space. You see the majority of people deprived of mo most everything living in a very, very poor state, and then you see these incredible villas. And then, of course, there's not, nothing else to do. You are basically, they can come to Israel, but with, with a lot of problems, it's not an easy living. You know, just leaving the area, they don't have passports. The Palestinian passport is not accepted by many. So they use Jordanian passports. There are many, uh, Palestinians call it humiliation, and they are sometimes. I mean, this, it's just a very difficult life. So if you don't see hope, for a future of a two-state solution, whereas a Palestinian state with sovereignty, real sovereignty. Uh, right now, again, these are details which, you know, the post-Oslo, the, the authority is divided in three different set, sets of authorities, A, B, C. Full Israeli, full Palestinian with Israeli supervision from outside and then joint. Uh, but even in the full, you know, the full Palestinian is like the main cities. Ramallah, Jericho, Nablus, these are the ones that have full Palestinian, but they're basically a city very populated without much to do, without any hope. So, yeah, long answer to you saying, yes, Hamas is, uh, has, has made inroads politically, and right after this, I think uh, they will have some people who say, no, we want peace because this is going to destroy everybody, and some may actually say, look, there is no chance of peace, we have to go for a, a militancy way. And then I think my next question is, so uh, after the War of Independence in 48, Gaza stayed with Egypt. Yes. So then after the Yom Kippur War, when they signed the Camp David Accords, and they start slowly giving back all of Sinai. Why did Gaza stay with Israel instead of going to Egypt if Egypt originally but, had it in 48? Egypt gave up on Gaza because it was not majority of people there were Palestinian. Egypt wanted its own land. Anwar Sadat, and then later after he was assassinated, but that was later on. But Anwar Sadat understood that Egypt cannot do it by, by force, after 73 specifically. Uh, it was a restoration of some Egyptian confidence and some dignity after 67. Uh, also, Israel understood that they are not invulnerable, uh, the element of surprise and all that. But at the end of the day, Israel won the war and again went, reached the other way. So Egypt understood they cannot do it politically, I mean, militarily. Politically, Egypt wanted every single inch or centimeter square of Egyptian land, not what they inherited as part of the mandate. During the mandate, that was part of the Palestine mandate. And the majority of people are Palestinians, not Egyptians. Again, when you look at that part of Sinai, it's very, very, the population is very sparse. They're mostly Bedouins. Here you have a, a gulf of Palestinians. This is one reason Egypt, even today, is very reluctant to open the borders. Because, if I may say this, there's a lot of sympathy, as long as they're not in your house. There's a lot of sympathy for Palestinians as long as they stay away. Uh, and Egyptians have their own issues. I'm not blaming the Egyptians. I don't blame anybody. It's, 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 Egypt is a very, very, uh, it has a very high population, growing with very few jobs, 
economics are really bad and the president uh, Mr. Sisi is doing his best to keep its own country intact. Let's not forget uh, in 2011, 2010, they had a, a, a major uprising. Uh, so they do not, and they understand whenever Palestinians are, if they are coming in, in, in large numbers, or if they had inherited this number of Palestinians in a quarter, uh, they, 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 they deem them as, as uh, if not, you know, disruptive or even changing the demographics in that part of Egypt. They cannot change the demographics of Egypt like they have done in Jordan, but because Egypt is very, very large and populous, but at least there, in a part which is far away from Egyptian territory. Sinai is mostly desert. So that's the reason they did it. But, you know, there's, in the geopolitically, Egypt wanted its own land, not the burden of the Palestinians. That's the short answer. Yeah, I think my next question then is, you know, it, it's the Palestinian people in Gaza, but the control of that Gaza area has gone. So it was the Ottomans and then the British and then the Egyptians and then Israel. And then now themselves. And then now themselves. Yeah. Before, when it was the other, when it was non-Palestinian, did the other countries prior to Israel have the same kind of issues with the people in Gaza that Israel kind of, or? Not really. During the Ottomans, again, if you want to go back history, uh, this whole area was not really that important. That's a fact. Uh, you know, uh, it was not a major pl place for Ottomans. There were some pilgrimages and the Ottomans had built a railroad, which you can still see the terminus both ends uh, in Haifa, uh, sorry, in Jaffa, not Haifa. Jaffa, which is what used to be Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv was a new city built north of Jaffa. Uh, this is Jaffa of the Bible, Jonah, the whale. So you see the terminus there, the other one ends in Jerusalem. The Ottomans were very, uh, they they were very actually relaxed about, about uh, who comes there. Uh, Christians came in, Muslims came in, Jews came in, and they went there, pilgrim. It also looks, not forget, the, the wall, the Kotel, or people call it the Wailing Wall, Western Wall, was built most of what you see is Ottoman. The bottom is from, from the time of, of the temple, but what you see, what people touch is mostly Ottoman building. So the Ottomans built it as a religious shrine and it wasn't, it wasn't contested. There were skirmishes between the communities, mainly Jewish and Muslim, but not much. And, and it starts later on the whole Palestinian-Israeli thing. It starts when you have the nationalisms, where nationalism trumps all other aspects in Europe, where you have Italy joined as a country, where you have Germany, all these small states or, or, or fiefdoms, if you would, barondoms become nationalized. With nationalism comes in, this is where Zionism comes up. Zionism is nothing but Jewish nationalism. The aspiration to go back to what was there from the time of the Bible until 71 AD on the, uh, when they were kicked out by the Romans. So did the Palestinians say, okay, well, if you say that you were there from the time of the Bible, so we are the Canaanites, we were there before you. You see what happens. They contest every story. But under the Ottomans, there was not much contestation. That's a fact. Some nationalists on both sides say there was a lot. There was not. I mean, you can look at them. Yes, there were some conflicts. When Zionism is created in Europe, let's not forget, Zionism was a European ideology based on a very old Jewish tradition of going back to what, where they come from. But the notion of Zionism, Zionism was not a religious movement. It was a secular nationalist movement to give the Jews a voice based on their Jewishness. What it does, which is very interesting, is actually allows, because everybody became national, right? Italians became Italians. As the famous saying was, we have made Italy, now we have to make the Italians. Well, Israelis, what is the nationality? Because in diaspora, since 71, when Jews were scattered all over the world, which is called the diaspora, they were in Russia, vast majority was in what is today Poland, Russia, Lithuania, Germany, France, later on, 
the U.S. has much data. Now it's the second largest after Israel, but it wasn't as, as large at the time. So nationality is what nationality is not Russian or American later on or German or Lithuanian. Jewishness becomes a nationality. So religion actually becomes a nationality. That's that's a very interesting aspect of Zionism. It uses religion on the se- sense of creating a nationality, but it is. Herzl, Theodor Herzl, the founding father of Israel, if you will. There were many of them, but he is the founding father. He wrote the book, a, 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 you know, A State for the Jews, or some people call it a Jewish state. He wrote it in German. Is is arguing for a, mainly a place of sovereignty where Jews are not put in pogroms or, or killed. Or, and, and the idea, of course, when this, after Herzl was, was, was already dead, uh, Second World War happens in the Holocaust, now Europe cannot even, you know, they want to give a place for these people because what happened nearly, you know, Hitler killed six million of them. And this is where Zionism actually, or that idea gets much more impetus. And at the same time, the Second World War also makes the Middle East a place where European powers are dividing it into pieces between First and Second World War. Most of the countries you see there came out from the struggle between the French, the British, at times the Russians, at times the Italians, as they're struggling. And this part of Ottoman Empire falls into, it wasn't called Palestine at the Ottoman Empire. The whole area was called Bilal Sham, the country of Sham, which is Syria. It was greater Syria. And at one point, this was promised to the Arabs. And the name Palestine also is a very ancient name. They both get names from the old, but when, when Britain takes over under the League of Nations in this scheme called the, the Mandate, if you look at the flag of Palestine, it's all red with the Union flag on the corner, and in the middle of it, it says in white Palestine. They couldn't put any symbol. Every other place where Britain had control over, they had some kind of a symbol representing that area. They couldn't even come up with a idea because they it was at that point contestations happened so the flag is all red union flag on the corner and it says palestine in a, in a white disc because they couldn't come up with idea they just kept it until then this is when you have the the beginning of militancy between jews and arabs heightened and heightened and heightened under the british and this is where the modern state of israel is born and the beginning of palestinian nationalism and then it becomes much more powerful after 48 and 67. For Zionism, you know, that idea, because it seems kind of backward to you talked about, hey, we yeah. all the states there in Italy combined, and now we have Italians, yeah. Germany, and now we have Germans. Yeah. But it seemed kind of the opposite where, you know, there wasn't an Israel, but they still felt connected in like a, a nationalist way. For Zionism, did it always point to this area of the world as the place where that's they a, think that's a, For most, yes. Want? There is, of course, everybody says Herzl at one. Uh, the very first time, when Herzl be, begins the, the notion, this is this is a historical one, we're going to jump back into the Herzl, when he begins his quest, you know, there's a history why he does that, the Dreyfus affairs and all that. Initially, he's a, he's a host, Austrian. Uh, and he likes to be Austrian. He actually believes in simulation, assimilation. He thinks that he speaks German only in French. Uh, we don't even know he, he was a, went to a synagogue. So he's not religious whatsoever. He's a very secular Austrian gentleman who speaks French. And that's important because he starts looking at Dreyfus. I don't want to get the audience totally out of this. Some people may know all of this and may tell me, oh, you're wrong here. There are some people who say, what is he talking about? You have a war in our hand. I think, I think, let me stop on that because if we don't get too far off on the Zionism history or the Palestinian nationalism, why are these important? Is, 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 and if I may say though, I, I, my job is I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher in a military academy. I have to say, I am concerned, and I say this for only my country, United States of America, with since the our 
experiences, and I say that with, with being nice, experiences in Afghanistan and Iraq, there's a tendency for us to look all on either the Pacific arena or major power competition. Uh, the questions you are asking, I think are very important for us to ask. I know they are not sexy. People don't like them. I know, uh, uh, you know, after the Afghanistan war, I was talking about Afghanistan and a, a Marine had sold somebody in here that, you know, we, we, we don't want to listen to the mushy culture stuff. Well, it's the mushy culture stuff. It's the mushy history stuff. It's the unsexy urban warfare. It's the, it's the relationships that's going to determine this war. When you look at it on paper, Israel is the most formidable military in that part of the world, bar none. And certain things, it's one of the top in the world. They are called a start, you know, startup nation. Their technology, yes, the United States is helping them funding and with support and with technology, but some of these defenses you see, whether it's the, you know, Iron Dome, David Sling, all from Israeli uh, minds, they are very good at intelligence. All of that is smashed right now. The idea of Israel invulnerability or that their intelligence agencies will not allow something like this to happen. What the Palestinians or Hamas, the terrorists, would do is, you know, lob some rockets and then they will get a major attack back, which Israel, some, some scholars uh, have called it mowing the grass. It's a book, a French author had written it, the Lopetim Khan said, to mow the grass and then when the grass grows back, you grow it. And it's, it's basically managing the conflict. That was the key word. And everybody believed that Israel could keep on doing that. So it was the political pressures that was being brought up. Well, it doesn't work anymore. Israel lost more people, more Jews were killed on that day than since the Holocaust, where the term was never again, never again. That happened on Israeli territory. The whole idea of Zionism was to give Israel a land under its own sovereignty, going back to your question. Israel, Israeli history goes back to the Bible. There was a land of Israel. There was Judea, Samaria. That's why they use those words. So their historical reference is what was there. Solomon, David, these were kings of Israel or Judah, or Judea, Samaria. And they want to go back to that. So they didn't have any other country between the, 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 the you know, we're not going to the first diaspora, which is you know, the first exile, which is Babylonian, that would take us to, we lose all the audience. But the second one, which is which is 71, you know, for Christians, this is what you see in the Bible. The, 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 the temple that Christ talks about is this temple that the Romans destroyed. Those of you who have been to Rome, you can look at Arch of Titus, you actually see the, the raiding of this temple. So this idea comes in, and the idea of state of Israel was it, Israel now has sovereignty they are not bound by the goodwill of Americans or Lithuanians or the bad will of Russians, pogroms. No, they have sovereignty and never again anybody will harm them that way. 7th of October has shattered that, has shattered this very important, the deterrence of Israel. There was this aura that Israel is, yes, you can defeat 73, you can, you can go in there but then they come back and take over more and then, you know, they gave up Sinai, but they never really wanted to keep Sinai. This war for Israel, the most important thing, of course, they are hostages, 200. Hamas says that 21 were killed by Israeli bombing. Who knows what they did to them? But that's a very sad point. That at least 200 human beings are held hostage. Some of them were babies. Some of them were elderly. Uh, very inhumane at, at every level. There is the issue, of course, of, of Israel's, how long that Israel will have the goodwill, at least of the West. I think in the US, they will have a goodwill for a long time, but of Europe, of the streets of the Europeans. Although right now, they're, in, in all of that, but at the end of the day, when, when are they gonna establish their, their deterrence again? And if they don't, 
the vulnerability level goes much higher because then there are other powers, local and sub-regional, that may take Israel as vulnerable in what they claim in their statements over and over again that we will destroy Israel, they may actually attempt that. And that is something that we have to be, be very careful about. And going back to what I started, this, this, this is within the PME world, I'm not a policy person, I don't talk policy, I don't make policy, technically. Within the PME world, the professional military education world, if we don't bring ourselves down to look at the nitty-gritty and just keep looking at major power competition and major geostrategic, we're going to miss this danger. And this danger, again, there are more American forces to make sure that a major war doesn't happen or countries such as Iran don't get the wrong idea in the Eastern Mediterranean right now than any time other than what you start at your conversation, Major, which is 1983, which we had about four aircraft carriers. Right now we have two aircraft carriers and one look like an aircraft carrier for, for most people, but it is a marine landing craft, uh, USS Baton. So when we have all of that, there's a lot of power. Chinese are showing up there too, by the way. But I heard in the open media that they're sending six ships into the region. Uh, we have to look at the, the bottom because this war is house to house surge. For those of our audience who served in Iraq and learn about Iraq, not where we served, but with, look at Mosul with the Iraqi forces, with our support, with other support, taking over Mosul back from, from ISIS. How long it took them, this is with their own country, by the way. How long it took them and what kind of loss? More people were lost in the takeover of Mosul by their Iraqis and their allies than what ISIS did. And again, as I say, this was not as, as numbers differ, but some people say up to 10,000 were killed. So we have to get back down and dirty and learn about these little things. The reason that I think we started today with a little historical background is that my fear, my personal fear, this is again my personal opinion, is that we are looking at this again very, very, very from a, as we say it in, in the US military, from a 30,000 30, foot feet perspective. We need to get down. We need to get down all the way down and see the, the dangers. We went to Afghanistan with a stated goal of destroying Al-Qaeda. But that goal morphed into democratization in Afghanistan and at the end of the day, the Taliban are there. We went to Iraq, ostensibly because they had nuclear weapons, or at least they wanted to create it, which was of course wrong, unfortunately. But then the, it became democratization. We never even asked ourselves what a democracy in Iraq would look like with the majority Shia who are trained in Iran. Well, that's exactly what we got. Uh, same thing with Hamas. When Hamas was putting his head up and Israel left Gaza, there was not an afterthought. And these are very, uh, in the military sense, some people say, well, this is not our job. No, it is our job. We all have to think of it. You know, we, in the US, we talk about whole of government. This is the whole of government. We, we have to think, not just our government. We can't do any of these things without our allies, which again, require understanding who these allies are. What are their sensitivities? How did they manage to help us? Where are their uh, vulnerabilities or, or, or places to stop? I'm putting a lot of things here at the end because I want to see those will be as we go. Of course, we'll cover uh, the events, but more analytically, because covering the events as they happen, that's available in, in, in many, many places. And I'm sure everybody can get to that. Yeah, I think my closing thought would just be, you, know, you talked about, hey, we don't want to, we don't want to learn about the mushy stuff. Right. But I think, you know, as we got further into the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, we started getting into more of a systems analysis. How does A affect B, which also affects C? And then also, how do the effects of X, Y, and Z also affect C? trying to get this better idea of, you know, how do I get the end result that I'm trying to go to? 
there might be multiple levers and it can't just be several JDAMs strategically placed into a location to solve your problem. Right. Right. You know, I think there are plenty of times throughout history where we can see a, a misunderstanding of a region or the interactions of people, you know, led to decisions that just didn't make sense. You know, we can totally different topic, but looking at the Kurds in Iraq, you know, how we drew the lines in Iraq, mm -hmm. having an understanding of the interactions, I think is important. We can call it mushy all we want to, yeah. but you know, if we ignore it, it's not it, going to. It, it, it's not going to. It's not going to help us exactly. Hallelujah! It's not going to help us in the sense of our objective. Israel's objective today, the stated objective, is to make sure that the Hamas does not have the capability of doing what it did today. Basically, the, the destruction of Hamas's military capabilities. Uh, that's a tall order. Uh, the question, we will not discuss that later. What would replace it? Is there a process? Like Iraq, we went without thinking what we're going to do. We dismantled a, a functioning government. And, you know, again, you know, somebody may say, okay, let's not talk about what has happened. I always say that it has, it's, that milk is spilled, but we have other glasses of milk. Let's not spill those. This goes back to an old saying, you know, those, let's not cry over spilled milk. We need to learn from spilled milk, even though some of those may not be very pleasant for some of us. Uh, and, and again, we started with Beirut. Uh, let us review that and see what happened and how it changed our whole policies. It changed, uh, you know, if those want, uh, maybe I can send you, I, I've written a, a piece in the French uh, journal about the effects of Beirut on American, not just counterterrorism effort, but our whole policy and, and why the other side saw Beirut as such an amazing victory. It drove us out, by the way. We had Ronald Reagan, a very, very formidable president in the United States. We left. They hurt us in the embassy. We stayed. Then they hurt us much, much bigger in, uh, in, in, in the BLT. And we left. That means that they can force a superpower with a very uh, a president who was was there to win the you know Cold War, although this mission was a peace mission, uh, drove him out. And they're thinking the same thinking. Don't forget that is the same trajectory that keeps on going, and we see parts of it today. Uh, with that, yeah, I think that might actually be a good next episode is talking about how Beirut has affected us going in because that's yeah. affected our attitudes in the current conflict uh, as well. So I think we'll hold off on that and, and put that in a different episode. So with that, uh, Dr. Tarzi, thank you again for your time and sharing your thoughts today, uh, especially on uh, today, the 40th anniversary of the bombing of uh, the barracks area in Beirut. Um, so that's all we have for today. Uh, so for those uh, listening or watching, uh, go ahead and carry out the plan of the day. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Kulak community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you have enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support, and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.